Let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be in verses... um, Awesome. Okay. Chapter 9, verses 9 through 17 is where we'll be today. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. If you're our guest with us for the first time or so, we are working our way through the gospel of Matthew from beginning to end. We started last Christmas uh, with the birth of Jesus. And, uh, and we're, y'all are laughing because it got cold this week. And you're like, man, we've only going to make it 10 or 12 chapters before. Yeah, that's right. So get over it. All right, just kidding. Uh, but that's what we're doing. We're, we're trying to understand who Jesus is and what he's done and what the implications are for the world, ourselves included. And uh, so we're just taking, uh, taking it one step at a time through this gospel. So in Matthew 1 through 4, Matthew has said, this is who Jesus is as a person. This is his backstory. This is where he was born, who his parents were, all that kind of good stuff. Matthew, he, he is the Messiah as a person. Matthew 5 through 7, he is the Messiah in word. It's a long sermon, Sermon on the Mount. Go back and listen to our podcast. You can take a grab. And now we're in Matthew 8 through 9, and this is Jesus, the Messiah in works, where he is performing miracle after miracle after miracle and doing things that, that can only the Messiah can do. And so um, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew structures it, three miracles and a teaching on discipleship, three miracles and a teaching on discipleship, and then three Three more miracles and a bonus miracle um, at the end. And we've kind of referred to this as Matthew's club sandwich, right? Just that three-layered kind of thing. And so we're on that second teaching of Matthew's, um, of Jesus's teaching on discipleship. So uh, by way of introduction, and then we'll look at our text, uh, about 12 years ago, my mother uh, was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, uh, ALS. And, um, and so soon after... Uh, that, now, if you'll remember in 2010, our economy was like in the tank. Like it was, these are difficult times. But, um, so, but in, that, in that time, so things were, if you, if you had the resources to go and do something, it was really inexpensive to do this. So with my mom's diagnosis, and if you know anything about ALS, it could be two years, it could be a few more years. She made it six before she passed away. But in that same year of her diagnosis, Holly and I went with my brother and my mom's sister, uh, older sister, uh, uh, Aunt Gloria, um, and we went on a cruise in the Mediterranean, okay? So it was remarkably affordable because of the times that we were in, and it was an absolutely amazing trip, okay? Uh, My mom was still able to walk and talk and do all those things that you later lose in your your ALS diagnosis. So while we're on this trip, okay, so this is a little, little weird bunch, right? It's my wife and I and then my brother and my aunt, and her, my mom. Like, it's just kind of this weird little grouping, but that's who could go, and that's how it worked out. So on this, we learned a lot about each other um, on a trip like that, as you often do when you're out in a new environment. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I learned about uh, my, my, my mother is that she is uh, very, very quick at getting ready to go anywhere and do anything. So in 20 minutes... You know, my mother could look like she'd run a marathon, and in 20 minutes, she could be ready for a really fine dinner out. Just really, really fast, right? And then my, my Aunt Gloria, her older sister, however, was the opposite, right? Where, where she may look like, not that she would ever have run a marathon in her life, but, but she may look like that. It would take her two hours, you know, to, to get ready for, for something like that. So I, I learned this because we were having this experience where we'd spent all day, you know, walking around looking at castles or whatever, you, you know, we were doing. And it, we were having this conversation like, can we be ready in time for our dinner reservation? And my mom's like, well, I can be ready in 20 minutes. 
you know. And, and my, my Aunt Gloria just looked at her and said, if you can be ready in 20 minutes, you probably just don't even need to go. <laughs> because in her mind, like, you couldn't possibly look good enough in 20 minutes, right? That was, that was the thing. People are just different, right? I mean, they're just, they're just different. Mama would dry off with a bath towel. Like, not bath towel, but like a hand towel. She'd be like, when she'd get dressed and she was gone. And Glory, she was like a slow-moving barge. It was every ounce of detail that she could put into everything that she would do to look perfect, that's what she was going to do. And they were just, they were just different, okay? I hold that up to you as an illustration for the main point of this text that we're going to look at. We've got nine verses here together, eight or nine verses here together. And here's what Jesus is trying to demonstrate, I think, for us. That following Jesus is different, and different people follow Jesus. Following Jesus is different, and different people follow Jesus. So let's look at the text together. Stand with me. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read together 9 through 17, these two little passages together about following Jesus. I've got the CSB. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he, that's Jesus, heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Point number one, three things that I want you to see. Point number one, following Jesus is different, and different people follow Jesus. I get this from verse 9. Look at there. Jesus says, he went on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to Matthew, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, Matthew's immediate audience, Matthew, the author of this gospel, they would have gotten instinctively the thing that I'm getting ready to draw out here. Um, But the fact that Jesus did the choosing and the fact that Matthew was chosen is mind-blowing. It just feels like the kind of verse that it's like laying the ground like it's a topic sentence. No, this is world-altering. Because following Jesus is different, and different people follow Jesus. Because in Jesus' day, the disciples were the ones who picked the rabbi, not the other way around. 
And the disciples would choose a rabbi based on that rabbi's knowledge of the Torah because it's in the Torah where a rabbi's authority lies. Not with the rabbi himself, but in the Torah and his ability to know it and understand it. Okay? So it's like when I finished uh, seminary, I could not get a job <laughs> like so many of my friends. So when you, what do you do when you come out of grad school and you, you, you can't get a job? You go back to school, right? So I enrolled in more seminary. And I chose an institution in part because of the specific Greek professor who was there. Right? Based on his knowledge and his expertise, I wanted to be a disciple of that particular rabbi, if you will. So I'm the disciple, and I choose the rabbi. I could have chosen a lot of different rabbis out there, but based on what I thought this would need, that's the one I'm going to choose. By the way, when I got there, he was gone for a year, so it did not work out too well. He was following a rabbi somewhere else. So similarly, in Jesus' day, disciples chose rabbis based on their understanding of the authority of Torah. And what Jesus does here is the complete opposite. To long-established precedent, Jesus does the choosing of a disciple. And the reason Jesus does the choosing of the disciple is because he is the authority, not the Torah. The Torah points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah, if you'll remember from Matthew 5. So Jesus is not trying to prove himself to potential disciples. He is the authority, so he chooses the disciples. Okay? And did you notice the terms of the relationship? He saw Matthew sitting at the tax office, and Jesus said, follow me. That's it. Those are the terms. If you're going to enter into a discipleship relationship with Jesus... Follow me. Those are the terms of service, which was radically different from the standard practice of the day, right? So because typically being someone's disciple was a means to another end. You would choose. So if I'm going to grad school and I choose a Greek professor to follow, it's not so that I can follow him forever. He is a means to another end pastoring a church, teaching at another institution, getting my own band of disciples together. And that was the case in Jesus' day too. You would choose a rabbi, but you wouldn't choose to follow him into perpetuity. You would choose to sit under him for a little while so that you could have another career doing the same thing that he was doing. Okay, That's what it meant to be someone's disciples. But for Jesus, that's not the case. Jesus is doing the choosing, and the terms of service are, follow me. You're not going to graduate. You're not going to move on to something greater or different. And did you notice who Jesus chose? Look at verse 9. Matthew sitting at the toll booth. Okay. Jesus chose a tax collector. Now I want you to go back into your mind in grade school. And I want you to think about you're being in third grade, and you're on the playground, and you've got 15 minutes of recess. And in my day, it was kickball. Weather permitting, kickball was your morning. Okay? And I want you to imagine that you're a captain of one of those teams, and you get to pick first. Who are you going to pick? I can tell you who you wouldn't pick. You wouldn't pick Matthew. 
because Matthew's the worst. Okay? He cannot catch. He cannot pitch. He cannot kick. He is slower than molasses. And all of his best friends are on the other team. But that's who Jesus picked. He picked Matthew. Now, just a couple of Sundays ago, Jesus warned a scribe of the law and someone else about the cost associated with following Jesus. A scribe. Okay? But when Jesus saw Matthew, who was infamous, an openly despised Jew, working for the Roman government, taking money from Jews, giving it to the Romans, taking more than he was supposed to because all tax collectors were thieves. Jesus chose him and he said, follow me. Okay. Jesus, the one to whom the Torah points, the one who fulfills the law, the very authority of God himself, the same one who with his voice calmed the wind and the waves just a few days ago, looked at Matthew and said, follow me. The ability of a, to be a disciple of Jesus sits with his authority to call you, not your desire to choose him. I'm going to say that again. The ability to be a disciple of Jesus sits with his authority to call you, not your desire to choose him. Following Jesus is different and different people follow Jesus. Now, if you want to know why, why Jesus chooses different people like Matthew, and why those who follow Jesus are different, you're going to get an answer in verses 10 through 13. Look at the text. This is why. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners, he chose Matthew and the floodgates opened. If he'll, if he'll take Matthew, let's go. They came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, oh, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And now when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. I love this so much. In Jesus' day, Jesus' culture, to eat with someone was to accept someone. Holly and I were out to dinner the other night, on a date night, and two, two tables down, the restaurant was largely empty, and, and two, two tables down um, was a first date, blind date. Like maybe they had met through an app or something. Right? So, so it was, they were not accepting one another. They were meeting one another in our culture. To have a meal in Jesus' culture was to accept someone. Therefore, pious people only ate with people that they thought were pious and so on. It's like Rush Week in college, except it just never stops. Okay? You're always trying to find out who you match with. Okay? That's not the way Jesus went. Okay? Jesus who is God in the flesh, the one who controlled the weather with his voice, the one to whom the Torah is about, Jesus chose to eat, accept 
tax collectors and sinners, people like Matthew, people who were infamous in the communities for lives that are moral dumpster fires. That's who God chose to be with, which is a really curious thing if you're a Pharisee. So the Pharisees ask, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And what you need to hear is, is why does he accept them as human beings? They aren't good enough for us. How could they be good enough for him if he claims who he is? It just is different. They don't get it. And this question is not just about curiosity. It's actually a critical statement. It's, it's the, way the, the way it's structured in the Greek is like, can you believe this guy? I mean, how does he even eat with these? It's, they're incredulous. So Jesus responds with a very well-known parable in his day in verse 12. When he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So Jesus has already taught this parable in action back with the miracles that we've seen, right? He's literally healed sick people. But now he's doing it with, with words. So you had... Sick outcasts, and he healed them. You had sick pagans, and he healed them. You had sick women, and he healed them. And then you come to the paralytic, who, and Jesus uses that man's illness to transition the conversation away from physical healing toward spiritual healing, where he forgives sin. And now Jesus is accepting and eating with known sinners, and he speaks the same parable, and he applies it differently to our spiritual state. And here's what he's saying. He said, the reason that following Jesus is different and that different people follow Jesus is because it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. He's revealing something about the heart of God that we need to understand. Jesus is a doctor. We are sick. And Jesus is making house calls. 2020, February, first week of February, my dad brought everybody into Orlando, Florida for a week-long vacation in Disney World. My brother, his wife, my other brother, his wife, and their two kids, our four, so six of us, and my dad and my stepmother. It's a great trip. First day was amazing, and that night, Luke got a raging fever and was laid out in my lap in a restaurant, and we're like, you know, here we go. Like, you get here, and this is, this is, what's, this is what's going on. February 2020, okay? So he's sitting in my lap, and, you know, it's, we handle sickness a little bit differently than my brother and his wife, and she's a nurse practitioner, so there's really no telling her how we're supposed to handle anything related to sickness. You know how that goes. So it's created tension. We haven't even been there a day, and we've already got tension. You know, we've already got drama. So the, the, he sleeps it off that night. We give him some medication. He sleeps it off, and he wakes up, and he's still really sick. So everybody else goes, and I'm there. You know, it is like it's a viral. We're passing this thing along, you know, da da da, da. It's not even COVID yet. yet. Well, it probably is COVID yet, but nobody knows it, right? But um, so it's like, so we, okay, we got to figure out how to go to the, the doctor. So I call an Uber, and we go to, he said, well, we'll go to this Disney, this place where all the Disney people go. And we go in there, and it's, it's packed. One kid's got a garbage can, and he's throwing up in it the moment we come in. You know, I'm like, oh, good night. It's going to be 
hours waiting thing. I'm like, forget this. So we go outside. I call another Uber, and I say, I want you to go to this place. And we go to this place a few miles away, and the line, it's in a strip mall, and the line is like this, you know, outside, and it's going down the thing. I'm like, oh, what is going on? It's like, is there a pandemic? Like, what is, what is, goes the flu season in Orlando? We're going to like, what is going on? So, so we go back to the room. I'm like, you know, what am I going to do? And I get on there. I get on the internet. The internet's amazing. The internet is amazing. How come I didn't find this? Did you know that for under $200, a physician who is retired, gentle, and wise in his you know, late 60s will come to your Disney resort room and do a flu test and a strep test and give you medicine. He'll do all of it for under $200. He makes house calls. It was amazing. He had strep, not COVID, by the way. It was, it saved us because Abby got strep the next day. And we knew exactly what to do. It was so great. Jesus wants you to understand that's who he is. He's a doctor making house calls. Okay. He wants us to understand this. And so he quotes Hosea 6, 6, which is in verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is saying to them, what I'm doing here with Matthew and his buddies is I'm being a doctor. God is a doctor. And God makes house calls. He's saying to the Pharisee, instead of the law serving you and showing you the heart of God, you are serving the law and missing the heart of God. God is focused on outcasts. God is focused on the poor. God is focused on those whose lives are a dumpster fire. And that's what it means to be righteous. You're so focused, Pharisee, on performing and expounding on the law that you're missing its heart. So following Jesus is different, and different people follow Jesus. And the reason why this is the case is that God is a doctor making house calls. Folks, God is, God is not a recruiter drafting star performers. So following Jesus is different. Different people follow Jesus, and the followers of Jesus behave very differently. That's my last point. The last thing I want you to see is that the followers of Jesus behave differently as a result of this upside-downness of following Jesus. Look at verses 14 through 17. John's disciples, John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast at all? Okay, this is the implication. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. Some of you are old enough to know exactly what this means. Because you got one pair of jeans in the fall from Sears and they were torn up by October from school and your mom bought a patch the other color of denim and ironed it over was anathema. Now we buy them with whole holes ripped through them, right? And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Do y'all know how this works? I'm just curious. Y'all knew about jeans. You know about how to make wine? I'm just, okay. You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. Uh, 
it's an Episcopal church, we'd have a different reaction. Okay. Right? Otherwise, the skin's burnt. You take something that's already been stretched from the fermentation process, and you put the wine in there, and it ferments again. It's already stretched, so it's going to explode. And Jesus says, you ruin the wine, and you ruin the skin. You got nothing. No, you put new wine, you make it into a fresh wineskin, so you get both. Now, notice that it was John the Baptist's disciples who asked this question. So there's this presumed relationship between John the Baptist. My professor called him John the Bulldozer. There's a relationship between John the Baptist and, John, and Jesus. Right? John prepared the way, but Jesus is the way. So the fact that Jesus' disciples didn't behave the same way as John's disciples was a curious thing, particularly as it related to fasting. And I don't think it's accidental that John's Disciples are the ones who are like, hey, could we eat more? Like, you're looking like it's... (laughs) So Jesus uses three illustrations to make sure we understand why his disciples behave differently. And the first is a wedding illustration. Verse 15. Can the wedding guest be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So weddings in Jesus' culture were long and festive affairs. Introverts, nightmare. Seven, eight long days, right, of one just party, 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 right? So if you go to John 2, you'll see that Jesus went to one, provided some wine to keep the party going, boosted the reputation of the family, and revealed something about himself in in the process. So Jesus' point here is that the reason his disciples don't fast is that they don't have to. They don't have to long for anything. They don't need to want for their spiritual needs to be filled because Jesus was here. He was right there. John the bulldozer was preparing the way for Jesus and the preparation for the Messiah coming required a certain level of austerity that fasting would provide them. But now that Jesus was here, the time for joy had arrived, so you don't need to fast anymore. What you were fasting for has happened, so you stop fasting. Okay? So the coming of Jesus and the the new kingdom of life that he was bringing is not reason to be austere, but it was reasons to splurge. For now. Because Jesus says there's going to be a time. The time will come when he'll be taken from them. He's going to die. But then he's going to be resurrected and ascended. And until he comes again, you and I will fast, but it's different. I'll talk about that a little bit later, but he's already come once. He beat death when he came, so we don't even fast the same way that John the Baptist or the Pharisees fast. It's just different. It's different. So Jesus uses that wedding illustration to say, look, I'm here. Who doesn't drink wine when there's a wedding and the groom is there? Nobody. So we're here. There's no reason to be austere. I'm here. There's a party because the Messiah has come, okay? And then he uses the illustration about patches and wineskins in verse 17. Two other illustrations. Jesus is reinforcing for John's disciples the incompatibility that they feel between their ministry and Jesus' ministry. Okay? In the same way that you can't put an unshrunk patch on an already shrunk garment and have it maintain itself through the wash so too the new age of Jesus inaugurates new practices that are appropriate 
to having Jesus here. In the same way that you can't put new wine and that needs to ferment into an old wineskin and have it survive, so too the new age of Jesus inaugurates these new practices that are appropriate to the changed circumstances of Jesus coming. Okay. So for you and I, we have a new reality too, right? So not only has Jesus come, he's died, and he's resurrected, and he's ascended, and he has promised to come back, okay? So we, we, we behave differently than those who waited for Jesus to come to earth and those who walked with Jesus on the earth. We, we're different than both of those the people, right? The, the people who waited for Jesus to come lived with a not yet, not yet, not yet, delayed gratification, sacrifice, austerity, not yet, not yet. They lived with a not yet mentality. And the people who walked with Jesus on earth lived with a, he's here, he's here, party on Wayne, party on Garth. Like it's, let's do this thing. That is a, the wedding is on, on, is on. Let's, it's 1999, 2000, zero, zero. Let's do this. Like that's, that was their mentality. It was already, already, already all the time. Now he's gone, but he's promised to come back. So what do we live like? We live like it's not yet, but it's already. We live like it's both. Okay? Not yet, but already. He's come already, but he's not yet for final. So we, do we fast? Do we have some austerity? Do we have some solemnity? Do we have some seriousness about yes? But it's not like not yet. It's not already all the time. It's both. We hold those things in, in tension. All right, so what? So we've learned three things. Following Jesus is different. Different people follow Jesus. Because God is a doctor making house calls, not a recruiter drafting star performers. And this impacts our behavior. Okay, It's a new day for people who follow Jesus. So we have to respond differently, behave differently, have different attitudes, etc. So what? Okay, I want to share with you three things. Really, really important things. Number one, you are not beyond Jesus' call. If you think you're too good for Jesus, that you don't need him because you've got your act together, you are not beyond his call. I hope that he will humble you and help you see your need for him. If your life is a moral disaster, you were not beyond Jesus' call. Matthew was an infamous tax collector, thief, and pro-Roman. And he was everything you would not expect. And that's who Jesus is coming after. You are not beyond Jesus' call. Okay. Jesus is not the kind of God who is patiently waiting for you to get your act together before he can use you. It's just not the kind of God he is. He's going to call you, and he will set you right. He's not waiting on you to get it together. Two weeks ago, we talked about considering the cost and paying the cost. Okay? One of the costs that you have to pay is the cost of your pride. If you're too proud to have Jesus call you because you think you're too much of a mess... You'll also be too proud to have Jesus call you when you think you've finally gotten your life together because then you won't think you need him because you've got your life together. It's pride either way. 
you are not beyond his call. Just lay down your expectations that you need to get to a certain place for him to be willing to take you in. He chooses people who get there. You've got to get there. So you're not beyond Jesus' call. Number two, we need to be open to who Jesus is going to call. We bring, if we're honest, we bring preconceived notions or ideas about who Jesus is capable of calling or who he's going to call, who he's likely to call. We need to be wide open to who Jesus can call. One commentator put it this way. He said, all Christians would do well to reflect on their demeanor, their lifestyle, and their words what those things convey to others, especially the unsaved, this joy of salvation and the lively presence of Jesus, or whether they can communicate, even unwillingly, a dour, judgmental attitude that is quicker to point out the wrongs of others. We need to consider, even as the message of the gospel remains unchanged, whether the methods of evangelism, preaching, church growth, music, worship that were once effective in some circumstances have turned counterproductive and need to be replaced by new methods that will more effectively win and minister to the current generation. I have concerns about the church in general, not us. I do not have these concerns about us. I have concerns about the church in general that we we communicate to a lost world that they have to get their act together in order for God to admire them and want them to be on his team. Folks, that's why Jesus came, so that God, Jesus performed on their behalf and paid their sin for them, paid the price of their sin for them. Now what's required is belief. And then the work begins. So if we convey to a lost world that until they find themselves and get to a certain set of morality that's acceptable to God, then he'll do something with them. We're not preaching the gospel. We're preaching Phariseeism. We need to be open to who Jesus can call. Again, third, last one. We need to take risks for the glory of God. We need to take risks for the glory of God. Jesus is he chose different. It's just different. It was different. And we need to take risks like this. It's not an endorsement of all the things, okay? It's just a great movie. Okay. There's this scene where Smalls is in his bedroom. I know. He's he's in his bedroom. He hasn't made friends yet, you know. He's playing with these engineering steel marbles. His mother knocks on the door. And she comes in, and just as she comes in, the marble flips open the air and pegs her right in the face. And she sits on the bed, and she's like, look, we need, we need to have a conversation. You know, she's like, have you made any friends yet? He's like, no. She's like, well, why not? She's like, because well, I'm new. She's like, look, I, she says this, I want you to get out into the fresh air and make some friends. Right? I want you to run around, scrape your knees, get dirty, climb trees, hop fences, Get into trouble for crying out loud. And then she says, not too much, but some. You have my permission. How many mothers do you know who would say something like that to their sons? I think this is largely in tune with the heart of God for us today. 
this is a text that challenges us to risk our own reputation and our right standing with others by entering into personal relationships with people whose lives are a dumpster fire. In the same way that Jesus didn't join sinners in their sinning, but got to know them and called him to himself, so we must enter into relationships with people or groups of people and serve them as Jesus served them so that we have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And that's risky. Get into trouble. Not too much. But get into trouble. Okay? You could lose your good standing with the Pharisees, but you'll be in right standing with God when you do. So let's be a church that takes risk for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. And then we will stand and sing together in response. Father, we are thankful that following Jesus is different and that different people follow Jesus and this has an impact on how we behave in our relationships. And so we pray that we will respond to this text, that we would recognize that you're a doctor who makes house calls, not a recruiter looking for star performers. And that as a result, we will spend our time in this world proclaiming that heart of God to people who are sick. People who need a doctor, just like Jesus did. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.